I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. The Koala Moon podcast has revolutionised over 20 million bedtimes, with parents like you calling it life-changing and the perfect nighttime routine. With original kids' bedtime stories and cosy sleep meditations, Every episode has been specially designed to make bedtimes a dream. Listen to Koala Moon on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Hi, I'm Ethan Nadelman, and this is Psychoactive, a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. Psychoactive is the show where we talk about all things drugs. But any views expressed here do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Protozoa Pictures, or their executives and employees. Indeed, as an inveterate contrarian, I can tell you they may not even represent my own. And nothing contained in this show should be used as medical advice or encouragement to use any type of drug. Today, we're going to be talking about harm reduction, and specifically harm reduction in the context of drug treatment in America, where most programs are still abstinence-only, 12-step programs with very little flexibility to meet people where they're at when they're struggling with drugs. My definition of harm reduction refers really to any policies or interventions that seek to reduce the risks, the harms, the negative consequences of drug use or really any other risky or potentially dangerous activity. I mean, it, when it comes to drugs, we think about uh, needle exchange programs to reduce the spread of HIV and AIDS and other infectious diseases, or making sure naloxone is available for people who are using opioids and might overdose. Or, or maybe it's just about getting people to use less uh, or to use more responsibly or to switch from injecting drugs to taking them orally. There's all sorts of ways of harm reduction. Now, in my own life, I've been 
personally engaged in this issue. I mean, not just in my own life in using drugs in a harm reduction way, but also in speaking about this and teaching about it and writing about it. And then also beginning in the uh, early mid nineties in helping to fund and support and start harm reduction programs all around the United States. Now, harm reduction can apply not just to drugs or other activities. It can also involve a harm reduction approach to drug enforcement, drug policing. It can, there can be a harm reduction approach to drug markets, a harm reduction approach to drug policies. Today, we're talking with Pat Denning about harm reduction approaches to drug treatment. Pat's run a pioneering program with her partner, Jeannie Little, in San Francisco for many decades. She's co-authored books with Jeannie. Uh, she's been a teacher both in the U.S. and around the world, so I'm delighted to welcome Pat today. I'm really happy to do it, Ethan. I, I always love talking to you, and this is just the best excuse ever. You know, the first thing I want to do is, is just get into the broader issue of harm reduction and keeping in mind that there are some people who are into the nitty gritty of the subject and there are others who are going harm what? What's harm reduction? And so what's your elevator pitch about uh, what's harm reduction to the people who have never heard of it? Um, my elevator pitch is that harm reduction is what we do every day in our lives. Mm -hmm. Since we're human beings, we take risks. We ride in elevators, <laughs> we ride in cars, and we do things to minimize the risk. But so when people talk about harm reduction in the context of drug treatment, what they usually mean are alternatives to treatments that focus only on achieving abstinence. Well, you know, I think the other thing, Ethan, is that, you know, people get confused in talking about harm reduction because it's, it's not just one thing. There are different arms to the harm reduction movement. And the original arm was very much grassroots, very much drug user driven. It resulted in things like needle exchange programs. But then another arm came in, which was the public health arm, mm -hmm. which really was interested in reducing the spread of disease. And then there's policy and advocacy, um, which is really interested in ending the war on drug and protecting the rights of people who use drugs. Mm -hmm. And the most recent addition, which is not actually recent anymore, is, is treatment. And while I came in through multiple avenues of all the different arms of harm reduction, I think my contribution is primarily in the area of harm reduction treatment. I was looking around and I saw one of the things you wrote in the last year or so, it's for an excellent online publication called Filter. And you wrote about your dilemma about whether or not to provide alcohol to people who were living rough on the streets, you know, what we call skid row alcoholics, who might suffer the DTs if they uh, can't get any alcohol. Yeah, it, it came about because for the last two and a half years, we have been doing a, a pilot project for uh, the Department of Public Health in San Francisco of developing mobile pop-up drop-in centers. And we would come into different neighborhoods with a big the van that was outfitted as a therapy office, set up canopies, we cooked hot food for people, we had a drop-in center, we did therapy. And after COVID hit, we had to start shutting down. But in the process of shutting down our mobile sites and figuring out how to just do outreach, we started coming across people who were clearly in withdrawal. From alcohol. From alcohol. Because the shops 
were closed. People couldn't, like, shoplift alcohol. There were no people on the streets, and so people couldn't um, ask for spare change or ask for money. So people's ability to access alcohol was severely disrupted. And it was clear that people were really suffering. And I just immediately thought, well, this is crazy. At this point, we're handing out syringes. We're handing out crack pipes. People are doing methadone take-homes, and people are doing same-day prescriptions. So I'm just thinking, well, my goodness, there are all these people who are physically dependent on a legal drug that they now can't get access to. And the dangers of withdrawal from alcohol are severe. And so I thought, well, why don't we just give out alcohol? Just so our listeners understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, if you withdraw from something like heroin or cocaine, it may be extremely uncomfortable, you know, a terrible flu for some people, you know, all sorts of things, but it's not going to kill you. But if you become heavily dependent on alcohol, or for that matter, benzodiazepines, Valium-like drugs, if you rapidly withdraw from alcohol when you are heavily dependent, that can actually be life-threatening. Rapid yeah. withdrawal without some types of help can kill you. It's interesting. In, in the history of Alcoholics Anonymous, in the old days, they used to always have a bottle of booze at the meetings because they knew that the newcomers who were coming in might actually go into withdrawal, and they knew it was dangerous. So they would, you know, hand somebody a bottle and have them take a swig out of the bottle of booze if they were starting to show signs of withdrawal. Mm -hmm. So we've, we've known that uh, alcohol withdrawal is very dangerous. So I started calling up uh, alcohol distribution places mostly, and I will, I'll go ahead and use the company name, Bevmo, and ask them if they would make a donation of uh, little, uh, you know, the airplane-sized bottles of booze. And I told them why. And they, of course, were just like, excuse me, but no, <laughs> I don't think so. So I drove down to Bevmo, and I bought a few cases of basically vodka in, in little bottles. And I take it home, and I'm all excited. And I tell my staff, you know, oh, you know, I've got little bottles of booze. We can now hand that out for people. And all of a sudden, I'm like, Oh, wait a minute, Pat. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold up. You are a licensed therapist, <laughs> um, and you are going to be handing a drug, even though it's legal. You're going to be handing a drug to someone in order to help them with a medical problem that you're not even qualified to diagnose. Right. So here we are with this dilemma of knowing exactly what our clients need. And it's like, we're not allowed to give clients an aspirin. You know, you can't dispense medicine as a therapist. Uh. And all of a sudden I'm thinking, yeah, well, I'm old and I can lose my license and it doesn't bother me as I'm about ready to give it up anyway. But, you know, that's not true of the agency and that's not true of most of the staff. So it was quite a dilemma that I have completely refused to answer any question about how we solve that dilemma. <laughs> So, I mean, so, Pat, you founded and have been running this remarkable harm reduction program in San Francisco since, I guess, the 90s. What's the essence of that? Well, you know, it was kind of a long journey. And as, as I, uh, I, I said in a staff meeting today, I was a, you know, nice, sweet, perfect little girl who got really rebellious really fast and started questioning everything. And the HIV epidemic came along, and that gave me a reason to really start looking at 
uh, drug treatment and alcohol treatment because we were throwing a lot of young men into programs uh, who were dying and treating them not very well. So that I, I started thinking about alternatives, and this was in the in the early '80s. And over time, just kept developing new ways of thinking, and eventually met Jeannie Little, and we both had this idea of wanting to run a center that would take everyone, no matter what the status was of their drug use, no matter what their goals were for treatment. And so it was really the two of us just being defiantly determined to do it differently. So Pat, when you and Jeannie decided to do something new, tell me about your approach. The Harm Reduction Therapy Center um, provides individual and group therapy. At times, we also have medication uh, available. The goal of harm reduction therapy is to help a person who is having trouble with drugs and alcohol decide how they can better their life, how they can reduce their harm in whatever ways that is going to be necessary. Are they really going to need to take psychiatric medications? You know, are they going to need to absolutely quit drugs? Are they going to need to have family therapy? The clients are primarily very low income, often marginally or unhoused, often with very significant psychiatric or emotional difficulties as well. People whose drug use and emotional and family problems are so intertwined that you can't separate them. So we provide the full range of services. There's no limit to the treatment. Uh, a lot of our community programs offer therapy on a drop-in basis because our clients' lives are often so uh, disorganized that they can't keep appointments. Going back to the origins of the phrasing of harm reduction back to, I guess, the Netherlands in the 80s and such, and then coming in around needle exchange, both in Europe and the U.S. and elsewhere, there was people in our world debating whether harm reduction was the right word. Then our opponents were successful in calling harm reduction and legalization were synonymous, which, in fact, they weren't. There was overlap. Um, and then there was a point where some of our opponents thought they might try to co-opt the term. Uh -huh. And they said, well, we're doing harm reduction. We're forcing people into drug treatment. <laughs> and I, it always me that one other core element to the definition of harm reduction is that it needs to be non-coercive. It's an absolutely fundamental distinction. The foundation of harm reduction therapy and harm reduction treatment approaches is self-determination and a true collaboration between two experts, if you will. You know, the client is the expert on their life and often the expert on their drugs. And the therapist is an expert in helping people, mm -hmm. you know, an expert in developing a relationship that allows a person to be honest and to find their own power in terms of changing. Mm -hmm. It's like almost anything can be harm reduction. 12-step can be harm reduction. Abstinence-based treatment programs are harm reduction. If the client has a free choice in a menu of options, then what they choose is harm reduction. Right. And the choice should not be between either take this treatment or go to jail. That's right. It has to be an element of choice that actually involves a real freedom of choice. Yes. That if it right. involves, especially the state involved in coercion, it can't be harm reduction. Now, when you get to elements of compulsion by family or employers, I guess it gets a little cloudier then, huh? Well, it gets cloudier, but the difference is who is the therapist loyal to? 
And in a lot of the drug treatment programs, especially because the carceral system is so involved now, the funding in drug treatment is coming in enormous measure from uh, the criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. And so now drug treatment is very much in bed with this coercive system with all of its racial and oppressive undertones. And so now if you're coercing, even if it's family that's coercing, the therapist cannot be part of the coercion. The therapist has to be free. So, you know, I've worked with people who've been mandated to treatment before, um, mostly professional athletes. And the first therapeutic duty is for me to say, um, you have to be here and you don't have to talk to me. You know, what goes on between you and me in here is confidential. And your main decision is, are you going to show up? And if not, are you prepared to take the consequences? And if you show up, are you going to try and use this to your advantage? Or are you going to sit here quietly for two years? Anytime the therapist or counselor has the power to harm a client, it is not harm reduction. If you need to have drug testing, that's fine. But you have to go somewhere else to get your drug testing. And we won't allow the results of that drug testing in your chart. We'll be talking more after we hear this ad. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I'm Abby, a mother of two, and I had these battles myself. Endless excuses, delay tactics, and many tears and tantrums. But I've created a solution. The perfect kids podcast that makes bedtime a dream. It's called Koala Moon and it's hosted by me, Abby. With over 300 episodes packed with original stories and sleep meditations, Koala Moon makes bedtimes easy and enjoyable. Episodes start out engaging and really rather magical, but as they progress... They gently slow to a calm and relaxing pace to have your little ones out like a light. Since launching in 2022, Koala Moon has helped with over 20 million nights sleep and received over 6,000 five-star reviews. Win back your evenings. Listen to Koala Moon now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, ready to discover a new educational and interactive podcast for kids? Join Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids, where episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We learned how to recycle at the beach. That was great fun. Callie, what do you say? It was. And that time when we did the science experiments and Billy made raisins dance. That is so cool, Billy. He did. <laughs> Not to mention when a certain Elliot took up swimming classes with Lisa. That was me. <laughs> Bet 
can't catch me. I'm going to catch you. All this fun and more in our Stories for Kids. Lingo Kids Stories for Kids is now available on StoryButton, the kid-friendly device for screenless podcast listening. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. You and I were presenting at some drug treatment conference years ago, and this was a real aha moment for me. Somebody was asking you, well, I get harm reduction when it comes to opiates. I get it when it comes to needle exchange and all this sort of stuff. You know, I'm going to have a lot of patients dealing with methamphetamine. Well, um, I think we're getting into the area of one of my favorite uh, topics, which is the adaptive or the self-medication uses of drugs. And there are people whose functioning is actually improved by the use of certain drugs. And this one particular guy was um, very depressed, very disorganized, had all sorts of other issues going on. And it was clear that when he had had a little speed before he came into a session, he was much more focused and much mm-hmm. more able to actually talk. Because usually, even within some harm reduction treatment programs, they'll say, just don't show up high to treatment. You know, you don't have to be abstinent, but don't, don't use on the day that you have a, a session. And it's like, no, 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 actually, maybe you should use <laughs> before mm-hmm. you come. And, and I had another woman who was a polysubstance user, um, very serious mixed drug use. And she was finally able to say to me, I can't come here if I don't have a drink. And my office at the time was on the third floor of a building, and there was a bar on the first floor, you know, sort of handy for a harm reduction program. <laughs> because what happened is that she would come to therapy. She would get so overwhelmed talking about things that she would go home and be incredibly suicidal and would cut on herself or would do all sorts of drugs. And she was finally able to say, I can't do this. I can't talk about these things. And I just said, well, if you had a couple of drinks, would it make it better? And she's like, well, of course it would, but I'm not allowed to do that. And I said, well, I'm just trying to help you not kill yourself while you're in therapy. And what you're dealing with is so painful that if you need some alcohol in order to be able to talk about it, I just think you ought to go right ahead and take care of yourself. It, it, I mean, hell, it makes sense. And I also remember you saying that even with that person, you know, who had taken the speed beforehand, the alternative was if he hadn't done that, he'd be sitting in that session with you and all that would be on his mind would be getting out of that room with you so he could score again and use again. So, exactly. I mean, in a way, it's basically harm reduction as this sort of fundamentally pragmatic approach to dealing with problematic behavior, substance abuse, or what have you. People use drugs for reasons. The reasons are pretty simple. You use drugs to either increase pleasure, decrease pain, or alter your consciousness. That's kind of what people use drugs for. And we have somehow decided that it's not okay to alter one's consciousness for any of those reasons. 
in America, in prohibitionist America, we've decided it's basically not okay to get high. Except maybe with alcohol? Well, except maybe, but not too often. Mm -hmm. Actually, as a therapist, we were trained to be suspicious of anybody who drinks every day. So anybody who has a couple of glasses of wine with dinner, we're really trained to go, oh, you mean you drink every day? And it's like in Europe, they think we're nuts. Mm -hmm. But the prohibition mentality in America permeates everything. And it's really, of course, extreme when it comes to illegal drugs, because somehow we as a society believe that if drugs are illegal, they were made illegal because they're bad and they're dangerous. Mm -hmm. And what we don't understand is that certain drugs were made illegal based on racial prejudices and attempts at racial control. So I picked up the paper the other day, and there's this report about some of the national health agencies wanting to discourage people from drinking every day because they now believe, although it may have slight cardiovascular benefits, that it also increases the risk of cancer. And we know that when it comes to cigarettes, we know that smoking cigarettes is not good for you, but you see the government getting really behind a campaign to ban the consumption of nicotine in any form. Conversely, 65% of Americans are now saying marijuana should be legal. We're increasingly accepting of people using marijuana, not just medically, but to get high. In a way, one thing we've been fighting for, for a long time is to get people to change their minds. The problem is, is that they may be changing their minds in the right way when it comes to illegal drugs, but maybe heading the wrong way when it comes to the <laughs> legal ones. And there's that undercurrent of prohibition that is go it's going to raise its ugly head. And it's, it just depends on the times and the culture and who's in charge of which drugs are going to get demonized. You know, when we had prohibition in this country, you know, for 13 years, years, the law of the land said, alcohol is so dangerous, it's so poisonous that no one should ever be allowed to consume it. 13 years later, we made it legal again. And so what we had to do as a society to make that make any sense at all is that we had to adopt this idea that there's this disease called alcoholism and some people have it and some people don't. Mm. And if you don't have the disease of alcoholism, you can drink whenever you want to because alcohol doesn't cause alcoholism. It's only activated by drinking. That's an insane way of reintroducing a drug into society is by saying, oh, well, 10% of you can't drink at all and the rest of you can drink as much as you want to. I think the important thing is recognizing that it's a political ideology. It's not settled science. Behaviors as complex as serious drug problems are always a combination of biology, psychology, and sociocultural factors. And for each person, the relative weight of those factors can be different. And it can be different for different drugs. You may have a sort of biological propensity to overuse alcohol, but you might have a psychosocial propensity to overuse marijuana. Mm -hmm. You know, drugs are psychoactive. They act in the brain. They cause brain changes. Every activity that we engage in repetitively causes brain changes. So it doesn't necessarily mean it's a disease or it's even damage. It's, you know, it's a difference. And is it more important than a person's psychology? Sometimes. Yeah. 
often not. But it is very much the case that people have the drugs they can handle and the ones they can't. Um, you know, you and I have a <laughs> right. good friend and colleague. I, I won't mention his name for the purpose of this show, but this is somebody whose real problem was um, opiates and heroin. But when he put that behind him, he found that he could be a regular consumer of red wine and marijuana, even a daily consumer, and lead a remarkably successful and productive life. Right. And, and we all have our drugs of choice. You know, and whether that be because it's the most fun drug or because it's the one that helps take care of us the most. You know, if you could only have one drug for the rest of your life, what would it be? You know, I'm, I'm absolutely clear that my crown royal is coming with me to the desert islands. You know? Actually, that's a tricky one for me, I wonder. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's take a break here and go to an ad. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I'm Abby, a mother of two, and I had these battles myself. Endless excuses, delay tactics, and many tears and tantrums. But I've created a solution. The perfect kids podcast that makes bedtime a dream. It's called Koala Moon, and it's hosted by me, Abby. With over 300 episodes, packed with original stories and sleep meditations... Koala Moon makes bedtimes easy and enjoyable. Episodes start out engaging and really rather magical, but as they progress, they gently slow to a calm and relaxing pace to have your little ones out like a light. Since launching in 2022, Koala Moon has helped with over 20 million nights sleep and received over 6,000 five-star reviews. Win back your evenings. Listen to Koala Moon now on the iHeartRadio app Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, ready to discover a new educational and interactive podcast for kids? Join Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids, where episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We learned how to recycle at the beach. That was great fun. Cowie, what do you say? It was... And that time when we did the science experiment and Billy made raisins dance. That is so cool, Billy. He did. <laughs> Not to mention when a certain Elliot took up swimming classes with Lisa. That was me. <laughs> Bet you can't catch me. I'm going to get you. All this fun and more in our Stories for Kids. Lingo Kids Stories for Kids is now available on StoryButton, the kid-friendly device for screenless podcast listening. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. 
I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. You know, this issue now, right, with overdose fatalities, mm-hmm. I mean, hitting 60, 70, 80,000 a year nationwide, yeah. getting worse in this past year with COVID. I used to always explain to people that overdoses was actually the wrong word. That in the vast majority of cases, it wasn't people taking too much of one drug, that the real accurate definition of an overdose was fatal drug combinations. You know, taking opioids, combining with booze or with benzodiazepines, Valium type drugs. But now along comes fentanyl, right, <laughs> yeah. which has got a special kick to it, more potent than heroin. You know, it hits my city in New York first, but I can see uh, San Francisco is getting hammered by it now. So, mm-hmm. I mean, what are your thoughts about what's going on when I see these? I think your rate of overdose in San Francisco is much higher now than ours in New York, and ours is already incredibly high. What's your take on the overdose thing and whether information needs to change in light of fentanyl playing a bigger role? Yeah, you know, it's it's really complicated and and I'm not really the expert on, you know, sort of street level drug and drug distribution. Um you know, what I I do know um is that part of the problem with COVID has been that when we have been able to place people who've been formerly houseless in these shelter in place hotels, all of a sudden they're alone. And so we started seeing a lot more overdoses partly because people weren't on the streets anymore. And the streets of San Francisco, there's a lot of Narcan out there. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people who can save your life. Yeah, we should just explain to everybody that Narcan is the kind of common name of a drug called naloxone, which is essentially a miracle antidote for a heroin or other opioid overdose. That if you administer it quickly through the nose or a skin prick or whatever it is, that can really save people's lives. And so there's been a big effort to get that out much more uh, broadly to people. But if you're using alone... Right. If you're using alone, you can't do it. So that's one problem, I think, that that is contributing to the overdose increases. The other thing, of course, is fentanyl. And, you know, I I listened to a a webinar recently on fentanyl by Dan Ciccaroni, who's a noted researcher in the area of drugs. And what he was saying was fascinating to me, that fentanyl is really the only drug on the streets that was not created to satisfy a demand. It was created to develop a supply. So it's a supply-driven problem. Dan Chichione is probably one of the best researchers in the country writing about this stuff. You know, for for our listeners who may not be aware, fentanyl is something that hundreds of thousands of people get legally in the hospital. Mm Post-surgery, it's an incredibly effective painkiller, you know, like morphine and things like that. Uh, uh, It works really well. It's very potent, but in a very tiny dose. And the thing that's scary is that basically when you have drug dealers um, and people selling drugs who are mixing fentanyl with other drugs or selling it, getting the amount right is really tricky. You know, yes. and this stuff is being imported from China or China via Mexico or now being made in Mexico or whatever. So it's one of these things where law enforcement really is sort of helpless because mm-hmm. you can send through the mails, you know, a small box, which is enough for tens of thousands of doses. And really, there's no chance for law enforcement to intercept this stuff. Not that they could with even the more with marijuana, which was much bulkier. <laughs> right. You know, what happens also because the supply is so robust the dealers often have no idea what's in the drugs 
that they're now selling, which did not used to be the case routinely. You know, if you had a regular dealer, you could pretty much trust that the person would say, hey, this stuff's really good. Or, you know, this stuff isn't as strong as you're used to. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, this stuff's really potent. You might want to, you know, be careful. They can't honestly educate their customers now because they often have not a clue if there's fentanyl in it or even how much there is. Mm-hmm. So you don't have that kind of community education and support going on. And so people learn by their mistakes. And unfortunately, with fentanyl, the mistakes are often fatal. Right. So when you have somebody in your program and you know they've been playing with fentanyl or addicted to opioids and using fentanyl, what's your guidance for them? I mean, obviously, you're dealing with them from a psychotherapeutic dimension, but you're also trying to keep Mm -hmm. them alive so they keep coming back. Uh, Just as an example, if you, I don't know, any people you have in mind or generally that you can think Mm -hmm. of? The first thing that we do is make sure that people know that what they say to us will not only not go anywhere, but that we'll take them seriously. Mm -hmm. So communicating that is really important. And being able to say to people, you don't necessarily even have to tell me what you're doing, but can I tell you some things that might help? So we don't even necessarily have to ask for self-disclosure. You know, I can start off by saying, I don't know if you're using drugs, but here's a few things that I know that are out on the streets. Here's some safety precautions. Um, Here's a list of uh, syringe exchange programs. Oh, by the way, they also have safer crack pipes. You know, so I can start harm reduction education and support without knowing anything Mm -hmm. about what the person's actually doing. Well, let me ask you this. I mean, I'm reading now about, you know, San Francisco's got this, you know, once again, growing problem, not just with overdoses, but with homelessness and people building tents. And what would you be advising the mayor on this sort of stuff? Yeah, you know, thank, thank God I am not at, at that level. I do think, however, that there is a fundamental conflict between the haves and the have-nots, that the economic disparities in San Francisco have dramatically changed over the last 10, 15 years, um, that the conflicts between um, you know, neighborhoods that have less economic opportunity, the racial disparities, the economic disparities is, is enormous. It's like the San Francisco earthquake. And, and that's a fundamental problem that I don't know how is going to get addressed. I mean, the, the Haight-Ashbury is a good example. Um, you know, Haight-Ashbury has been a haven for runaway youth since the 60s. It still is. But now there are people who are paying millions of dollars for houses in that neighborhood, and they don't want any homeless kids there anymore. They don't want mm-hmm. their trash. They don't want whatever. Right. It's the standard issues around gentrification and yeah. clashes right. of community. Yeah. You know, Pat, you're, you also bring up an issue because you're talking about class in this context. It always struck me, though, that in a way, when it comes to dealing with clients, patients, in a harm reduction perspective, there's the same kind of class issue. Because if you have enough money or insurance to pay for private psychotherapy, the odds are very good that you and your therapist, if you're struggling with some type of addiction or dependence, you know, it's going to be in a somewhat non-judgmental setting, unless the, the psychiatrist or whatever is very judgmental. You're sitting in that office and the state's not part of the picture. Whereas if you don't have money, 
right? And you're looking for some type of treatment or help in much of the country, the only way you're ever going to be able to get that help, you know, or meet with counselors is going to be in something that's offered through the criminal justice system. That in fact, there is a very strong class dimension to this as well. I absolutely agree that there are major differences in class and what kind of treatment you get. However, for the most part, the expensive rehabs in this country use exactly the same treatment models as the public rehabs and the criminal justice-based rehabs, hmm. because there's only one model that's allowed in this country, and that's the Minnesota model, which is 12-step and disease model and total abstinence. That's changing in some, but probably still 92% of drug treatment programs use that model. And what you're saying about therapists is also changing but it's not as rosy as you think. I was trained that if somebody comes to me and I discover that they have a drinking or a drug problem, I'm supposed to immediately refer them to a drug treatment program and refuse to see them if they don't agree to be abstinent and go to treatment. That's how we're all trained as therapists. Yeah, no, no, I get your point. I really think the major distinction is that if you're poor, a lot of this treatment of any sort is going to come with the role of the criminal justice system involved. Yep. But you have the same kind of ideology and pigheadedness really at all levels of this thing, you know, going on, you know. Well, right, yeah. and, and then you've got, you know, because the criminal justice system is, you know, disproportionately made up of people of color. Mm-hmm. And the, you know, the other thing that happens is that we forget that everybody who uses drugs doesn't need drug treatment. And a lot of the people who end up being arrested, they don't need drug treatment. They've been dealing drugs and not particularly using them, or they're using them and they don't have a big problem with them. But they are sometimes given the choice to go to treatment or jail. Most people who eventually put a drug addiction behind them did so while they were not in drug treatment. Right. People may go through drug treatment programs five, six, seven times, and basically what happens is they hit a point in life when they're maturing out or they're ready or a change in life mm-hmm. when they're able to put it behind them. And that typically happens not when they're in treatment, but some other time for some unrelated reason. Right. The treatment industry has this belief that our treatment is perfect our clients are not. And so if the treatment doesn't work, it's the client's fault. Right, which is exactly the opposite of the approach we take in most medical care, which is if my intervention is not working, I better try something else because we can't blame the patient for this sickness. We have to figure out what the right intervention is. You're right. So it's a perfect area for ideology just getting ready. People need to understand also, it's not as if it's abstinence versus harm reduction right. because attaining abstinence or sobriety is a perfectly legitimate objective of any type of harm reduction, ambition, or training intervention. But it's the reaction against abstinence as the only way, the my way or the highway, the I can't help you unless you're willing to be sober and, and, and drug free before you even come to see me. But for the people who can't cut it, according to your abstinence only program, what's your fallback? Are you at least going to have, you know, Pat Denning and GD Little's phone number available so that you can send them to their program? What has been your relationship with the people running the, the abstinence only programs? Do they see you? Do they call you? Do they say you may be able to help this person? For the most part, no. I've done a lot of training, especially locally in uh, drug treatment programs. And um, they're very slow to change, even though San Francisco had a harm reduction policy as its public health policy. We've had it for 20 some years now. Um, Most of the drug treatment programs are still very much 
old school uh, mm-hmm. in, in terms of their approach. So I've, I'm feeling, you know, a little discouraged at the end of my career yeah. that um, there's so much that is, is still the same. Um, yeah. And every time I say that, people around me go, oh, no, Pat, all sorts of things have changed. It's like, OK. okay. Yeah, no, no. All sorts of things have changed. But you're right. It is it is frustrating. So, Pat, I got to ask you one last question. I don't mm-hmm. have to, but, you know, and I hope I'm not crossing a, a line. But I'm curious, you know, a few years ago, I heard that you were dealing with leukemia. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I hope you've come through that cleanly now and it's all good. But I just wonder, um, in, in reflecting on your work and reflecting on harm reduction, were there any interesting insights specific to the work and the thinking you've been doing all these decades where anything came out of that? It was really nice to be treated in a medical system that wasn't crazy about drugs. I was hospitalized for five weeks at a time, four different times for the intensive chemo. And every time a nurse came in, the first thing they would say is, are you having any pain? Which I thought, thank you. That's really nice. And and I remember one time I said, um, you know, I have a headache and I, I'm not a person who tends to get headaches. And she immediately said, would you like some morphine for that? (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, "Uh, no, I think a Tylenol will do, but thanks for asking. Um, But, you know, it was really nice to be in a setting where um, that when I was in pain at different points, it was freely given as were benzos for sleep, mm-hmm. that there was no hysteria about, oh, you know, we can't get you addicted to all of this stuff. So it was incredibly compassionate. So mm-hmm. I I really loved that. Well, listen, on that note, I want to thank you so much for joining me on this. I really look forward to seeing you before long. I wish you all the best, not just for your program, but for, uh, you know, your forthcoming retirement. And, and notwithstanding our mutual frustrations that harm reduction has not become common wisdom and the dominant ideology, the fact remains that you've done some extraordinary work and helped a huge number of people throughout your life. So thank you so very, very much. This was really fun. This really was. Say hi to Jeannie, okay? I will. And uh, look forward to seeing you. Psychoactive is a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. It's hosted by me, Ethan Adelman. It's produced by Katja Kumkova and Ben Kiebrick. The executive producers are Dylan Golden, Ari Handel, Elizabeth Gieses, and Darren Aronofsky for Protozoa Pictures, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick for iHeartRadio, and me, Ethan Adelman. Our music is by Ari Belusian, and a special thanks to Avivit Bar-Yosef, Bianca Grimshaw, and Robert Beatty. If you'd like to share your own stories, comments, or ideas, please leave us a message at 833-779-2460. That's 1-833-PSYCHO-0. You can also email us at psychoactive at protozoa.com or find me on Twitter at Ethan Nadelman. And if you couldn't keep track of all this, find the information in the show notes. Next week, we'll have the world's leading expert on Afghanistan and drugs, David Bansfield. In one province, Nimrod, the Taliban was earning something like five million from drugs. It's a minor form of income for them, but an absolutely critical rural constituency. Subscribe to Psychoactive Now so you don't miss it. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. 
Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. The Koala Moon podcast has revolutionised over 20 million bedtimes, with parents like you calling it life-changing and the perfect nighttime routine. With original kids' bedtime stories and cosy sleep meditations, every episode has been specially designed to make bedtimes a dream. Listen to Koala Moon on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Discover a new educational and interactive podcast, Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids. Our episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We went shape hunting around the block, and we found spheres and cubes on the street. That was great fun. Join Stories for Kids, the Lingo Kids podcast, inspiring you to learn while having fun. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast host Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.